Hello and welcome to Baka Banter, a podcast about all things anime and otaku culture. My name is Ravi and I'm joined by the lad who's finally let himself loose in the manga section, Yanatan. Do you want to say hi, Yanni? That's absolutely right. I had some fucking impulse buys this weekend. I don't really know why I wanted to buy manga, but I just swung by Barnes & Noble and I was looking at all the manga and admiring some covers and some art. And I was just like, maybe I'll just buy the first volume of Spy Family and the first volume of Kaguya and just start reading them. So I don't know exactly how that's going to go. If I'm going to let the Spy Family anime go for a few episodes or finish the first core and then sort of dive into the reading or if I'm going to catch up on Kaguya beyond where the anime is. But I started reading it today and it's great. So maybe I'll just become a manga reader. I got to be honest, I didn't know that you had actually bought it in person. So what was your experience like in the uh, manga section? You know, I've been there a few times because I've picked up some novels and things like that. And every time it's amazing just how much they actually have. And I posted this on social media and someone actually responded to me and was like, how much stuff do they have? Well, they asked me where I bought it and then they asked me how much stuff they have. And I'm like, they pretty much have everything. Obviously, if you're looking for something really obscure or maybe slightly outdated, they might not have it. But their manga section is pretty impressive. They have a lot of stuff out on display. Like they clearly know, okay, people are going to be looking for Chainsaw Man, for Demon Slayer, for Jujutsu Kaisen. They have those things front and center. They had another table with Spy Family and Kaguya and like currently airing things. They had a bunch of little short reviews that the staff had done on other manga series and books and things like that. So it seems like they're in the know and it's a fairly sizable section. So it's it's pretty cool to see. You should take me with you next time. Okay, we'll do a little Bakabanter field trip. So let's do an anime this week. Well, one thing that's been happening in the New York anime scene that we have been involved in is that the Japan Society is up near the United Nations in Manhattan, and they've started doing screenings and showings for anime films, actually. So I went a few weeks ago with my girlfriend to go see the Kaguya-sama season three premiere. That was super fun. Um, they showed the- Yeah, TFTI, bro. <laughs> I literally invited you and you couldn't go. <laughs> so they showed the premiere a week early, which was fun, but they also put it together with a bunch of cast interviews and some other cool sort of extra things. So it was longer than just the 20-minute episode. That was a lot of fun. And then they started a monthly series where every month they're just screening a different anime film. And some of them are going to be older or more obscure. So we went to see together Ghost in the Shell, which I had actually never seen before. It's one of those like classic anime films that somehow had just escaped me. So it's good to kind of check that off the list and see it in a theater with a lot of other people. They also had some Japanese snacks and drinks available beforehand. So it's fun to just go. It's a nice building. You can go and, and chill and watch movies. So that'll be happening every month. And I'm sure we'll go catch a few other screenings probably. And then other than that, the tri- do you have something else you want to say about that? In terms of New York things, I thought you were going to say that uh, we didn't end up getting tickets to Anime NYC because they all sold out. Yeah, the three-day passes for Anime NYC sold out pretty much instantly, which is crazy to think about because of the past few years, you were able to buy them you know, a few months in advance, a few weeks even in advance, and they were still available. So now it's only the day passes. We're yet to see if they're going to add more three-day passes or exactly what's happening. It seems like they're reducing capacity a lot to try to combat some of the line issues and stuff that we talked about on on the pod that they had last year uh, and vaccine checks and, and all those kind of things. So it seems like they're taking steps to try to combat that, but they really limited the number of tickets you get ahead of time. Some of them might still be available in actual stores later, I think over the summer. 
So we'll see exactly how that plays out. I'm sure one way or another we'll attend or try to host something there, but we'll see how it goes. But currently we do not have tickets. <laughs> well, aside from the New York stuff, the first trailer preview for the new Makoto Shinkai movie dropped over the weekend. So I wanted to mention that. I don't think they officially decided on an English translation for the title yet. It looks like some shit basically version of the same movie that Makoto Shinkai has made throughout his entire career because it's got a lot of water the visuals look great there's a female protagonist she's running around opening doors in some apocalyptic landscape I don't know I'm sure it'll be good on some level we'll probably disagree about exactly how good it is but it'll be interesting to see exactly where that ranks given the last Makoto Shinkai episode we did yeah there are a couple of new movies that I'm kind of excited to see in the next few weeks I'm excited to see Bubble on Netflix, yeah. which is coming out in next week. So yeah. probably by the time that we produce the next episode, you'll get to hear some of our thoughts on that. Yeah. And the visuals for that one look really cool. The storyline, I'm not so sure. So we'll end up seeing how that happens. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it too. But we'll see yeah. when it comes out. There's also the new Masaki Yuasa movie, Inuo, that I think has had some screenings elsewhere globally and not in New York yet. So hopefully we're getting that soon because I'm really excited to see that as well. And I've, I've seen some good reviews of it so far. So excited for that and then just the last thing i gotta mention we briefly touched on spy family and we are going to talk about that at length next episode when we do our spring seasonal first impressions but the anya takeover is here man like social media <laughs> is all about this little pink-haired child and with good reason because she's fucking adorable <laughs> she absolutely deserves it and spy family is great so far yeah, I'm actually waiting to see that one. I still haven't watched it yet. So by the time that we produce our next episode, I'll have some thoughts on it. Yeah. But sitting back in the bleachers watching that blow up on Twitter has truly been hilarious because I had no idea who this girl was. Next day, everyone's like, I would give my life for this girl. <laughs> First it was Boji, now it's Anya. Yeah, they definitely created a character that had the potential to just take over the internet. And as soon as episode one dropped, it basically took out that way. All right, so on today's episode, Yanni and I are going to finally air out our pillow talk and discuss one of our mutually favorite genres, the rom-com. We're gonna discuss what we think makes the genre so widely loved, give you a bit of a historical perspective, and then dive into some of our favorite anime rom-coms. So let's get into it. So Yanni, as a parallel to our husbando bracket, if you could be a part of any love triangle from a series, which would it be? That's not Origairu. Ah, <laughs> interesting. Um, see, it's tough because like Fruits Basket has a pretty good love triangle, even though kind of early on you get a sense for where things are headed and like people end up being happy, but like you're gonna lose as the guy because it's like a <laughs> two guy, one girl love triangle. That's why I want to pick uh, Aragairu. Sure. I, you know, I can I can go either way, and I just absolutely cannot lose. All right, I'll give you I'll give you a harem. What if I opened it up to just a full harem? Oh, then I'm just plot me straight in the Monogatari franchise and just leave me there. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on. So this may come as a surprise to y'all, but Yanni and I often have very different opinions when it comes to anime. If you've been listening to this podcast and you don't know that, like, what what have you been doing? <laughs> have you I don't know, listening? man. 
how many new how many new listeners do we have every week? That, Maybe this is just someone hearing us for the first time. That's also like, who are these? That's also idiots? very possible. Yeah. <laughs> so, for example, Yanni likes fake ass shows about <laughs> little girls adventuring to Antarctica, whereas <laughs> I like crazy. wholesome content about getting hit by trucks and waking up in an epic world of fantasy adventure. But one thing we can agree on is that we both love a good rom-com. And I think this is a common sentiment for many people. The rom-com genre is one that feels safe. It feels agreeable, kind of free from contention. And I think that's part of why it's been so successful. But why is it that rom-coms feel this way, that we all seem to have some connection with them? I've said before that relatability is important for me when I consume media, and I think this is at the heart of why the genre is so popular. Watching characters fall in love and explore romantic relationships on screen reminds us of our own relationships and experiences with love. Think about how easy it is to connect with these characters. We've all seen a ton of rom-coms, at least we have, between the two of us, many of which aren't even good. There's so much shit that we see on screen nowadays but we still often end up rooting for those protagonists and becoming emotionally invested in their meandering path to love. And watching those situations go awry through obstacles or miscommunications or just pure awkwardness makes us laugh because on one hand, sure, the events are exaggerated for comedic effect, but on the other, they're deeply real. And many of us find ourselves laughing at ourselves in situations that we've been in that mirror what we're seeing. Do you have experiences that remind you of yourself when you're watching rom-coms? Is that something that you feel too? For me, I don't think it's really, well, okay, yes. Like definitely, often in anime, I think the situations in rom-coms are contrived or exaggerated. And we'll talk about those as we get into the specific shows. So it's not usually a one-to-one -one mapping for me, but there are definitely experiences that I have had that are more watered down or realistic versions of things that I then see in anime. And that definitely helps with the relatability aspect on the point that you were making about why the rom-com genre is so successful and widely popular. It's, it's exactly what, what you said. Everybody on some level can relate to some feeling in a relationship and it might not be every single rom-com, but some rom-com out there is going to mirror some kind of experience that you've had. And this always makes me think of <laughs> when I was younger, I was pretty little. I think at some point I verbalized to my mom, like, hey, why is so much music about love? <laughs> <laughs> like just straight up as a child, I noticed that there were a ton of songs written about being in love, about heartbreak, about anything adjacent to romance and just wondering, why is it like that? And it's because it's one of the most like fundamental aspects of humanity and just like living life. And so no wonder that then in anime or in other media that that as a genre is so successful and resonates with so many people. Yeah, it reminds me of the time that I was in a Walgreens and I asked my mom what genitalia were in the middle of the Walgreens. It's not quite the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's the hentai genre you're thinking of. I see, I see, I see, sorry. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I totally agree. I, I think that I personally have some examples of situations where I see myself reflected in the show that I'm watching. I think that's why it's so deeply relatable and that's why I enjoyed it at least. Some of the common tropes we see, 
the anxiety about sending a text message that you end up just writing and deleting over and over and over before not sending it at all. I, I've done that. I, I think you've probably done that as well. No, all, all of my texts, all of my romantic texts are written perfectly on the same time. And then I hit send like a fucking chat. It's because Yanni's a signal. signal mail, so. <laughs> <laughs> or the, you know, what about being caught in miscommunications where something you said is often misinterpreted and led to hurt feelings or an argument. You know, I know that happens all the time between you and me when I say that <laughs> I enjoyed Mushoku Tensei and you think I'm a pedophile. And so... <laughs> uh, we're not rehashing that on the pod. <laughs> no. But what what is it about the genre besides that that you think makes it so popular? Is there something else? I really think at essence it is that. I mean, there certainly are other things you could point to. I mean... A lot of times, rom-coms are easy to consume. And obviously, that's an appeal. I mean, from a seasoned isekai consumer, you know that sometimes you just want some kind of quote-unquote popcorn entertainment. And of course, there are rom-coms that go a lot deeper into the meaning of relationships and connecting with other people and being in love. And we'll talk about some of those. But they don't always have the deep dramatic aspect that a more straight up romance or dramatic romance might have or some other genres. And so they are very easy to consume casually. And so when you combine that relatability with the casual consumption, I think that's just a recipe for a genre that is going to be popular and resonate with a lot of people. I agree. So why don't you break down with the structure of today's episode? Sure. It's going to be a good idea. So for the rest of the episode, we will talk about what makes up a rom-com, sort of expanding on the discussion that we just had now and talking about common tropes and themes within the genre. Ravi will do his usual history lesson. I have literally no idea what kind of history lesson he's going to give us <laughs> this time. But if you've been with us for our our other sort of genre episodes, like the East Sky episode we did, uh, we did a short segment on this in the Madoka episode talking about magical girls. We did this in the Satoshi Kon episode. So in these thematic episodes, Ravi always talks about history at some length so he'll do that uh and then we're going to talk about three specific shows that we have picked out as sort of emblematic of the rom-com genre at least in modern times we'll of course caveat that these are just an arbitrary selection of three shows that let us talk about different aspects of rom-com that we particularly like and of course there are many more that we could have chosen or could have fit this bill so we'll talk about toradora we'll talk about origairu and we'll talk about kaguya-sama so take it away yeah sounds good so as you said, let's start off by actually taking a few minutes to discuss what a rom-com is and discuss some of the common tropes within the genre. So what is a romantic comedy? Unfortunately, the short answer is that there is no universally accepted definition, which you have no idea how much that pisses me off because <laughs> when I was researching this, not only is the definition different on every source, but some sources literally say shit like, this PhD in media studies says the distinction is straightforward. And then that same PhD in media studies is quoted saying, well, this is my personal definition. And this movie is a borderline rom-com. <laughs> like, what the fuck are you saying? But there are some things that rom-coms do that set them apart from other works of romance. Generally, they portray the development of a romantic relationship in a light, humorous way. And generally, they end happily both of which serve to separate them from traditional romances or romantic dramas or tragedies, which we may do separate episodes on in the future. 
The typical formula for rom-coms starts with the meeting of two young lovers that are then kept separated by some complicating circumstance such as mutual anxiety or social differences. But eventually, after confronting these challenges and one or both of them realizing they love each other, they reunite to live happily ever after, at least in the manga. <laughs> because in the anime, half the time, it just doesn't end. And, and we just don't know who wins, which is incredibly frustrating. No, but now I'm starting my arc as a manga reader, so I'm gonna get just all the endings here. Uh, and you can just tell me them because uh, <laughs> don't don't do what you did for Spice and Wolf, but uh... <laughs> or Devil is a Part Timer. That was yeah, <laughs> those were bad. Those were just straight <laughs> yeah. spoilers for series that I never thought were getting continued. But we can optimize the process a little bit here. Yeah. So actually, I know you love Jeff Thu from Mother's Basement, but I have actually started watching his videos more recently. And he actually broke down this narrative structure really well by comparing it to the structure of the hero's adventure. The story often starts off by introducing the two characters separately and setting up a premise of unfulfilled desire, where the characters are missing something important in their lives. But their sudden meeting under unusual circumstances sets up the call to adventure where our protagonists become closer and develop their relationship and maybe even begin to experience love for each other. The ordeal then appears in the form of a challenge that prevents the characters from actually professing their love. But this is resolved at the end with the establishment of a romantic relationship or a profession of love that parallels the return of our hero. So... What are some of the common tropes within rom-coms? And I have to say right now that a lot of these tropes are actually just contained within that conventional narrative structure. The first trope I want to mention is the meeting of our two lovers under those unusual or comedic circumstances, which we can call the meet cute. I don't know. Have you heard of this term before? I have not heard of that term. <laughs> okay, okay. But I'm going to start using that everywhere. <laughs> so it's actually a term from cinema, and it's been around for a long time. It was actually popularized by the famous film critic Roger Ebert, which you've probably seen before through his rating system. But probably the best example from recent memory is the introduction between Marion and Gojo in My Dress Up Darling. Do you remember the moment they first meet? Yeah, when this bitch fucking just slips on an invisible banana peel and just smacks her head directly on his fucking desk. Exactly. He's literally looking outside, like contemplating suicide out here. He's like looking outside being like, hmm, it might be <laughs> better if I didn't that. exist. And then next scene, cut, you just see Marin flying at him. I mean, that's, also, that's just classic. Like even that framing in and of itself, you could think of so many anime where the girl just falls from the sky into the guy's arms. Like that is actually how Bakemonogatari starts. Like <laughs> that's just how it how it opens. So even that trope, take it to an extent, you just see it so many times over in anime. And that is the classic meet cute where we have two characters who don't know each other, but then are suddenly introduced to each other under this weird circumstance. And that in My Dress Up Darling is a scene that's soon followed up when Marin walks in on Gojo sewing, which leads to the show's central relationship between the two. Another is the nature of the ordeal faced by our lovers. In anime, the overwhelming majority of the time, the ordeal is a combination of anxiety about confessing one's love and miscommunication. And I guess that's to be expected because the overwhelming majority of rom-coms are set in high school where most people are having their first experiences with love and anxiety and miscommunication. And those are all to be expected. What do you think about that setting? The high school setting specifically. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just an anime thing. Like, if you think of romantic comedies outside of the anime space, they aren't necessarily only set in 
high school, like sure, some of them mightn't be, but if you think of like the fucking Hallmark channel or where you might see like the most cliche type of rom-coms, they are usually centered around Christmas or like woman working in the city realizes she needs to spend time in a small suburban town like away from her <laughs> job and she meets a man who makes her realize that money isn't everything like you know the formula can change depending on the medium so this is definitely more of an anime thing i did read something that i personally don't know how true it is but it was some post or some thread on on twitter or something that was trying to analyze or look at why so many anime are set in high school and the person was trying to make the argument that for a lot of people in Japan, they view high school through those sort of rose-tinted glasses where they really, culturally speaking, believe that that is sort of a, a golden era in people's lives where they learn a lot about themselves and people sort of look back on their high school years very fondly before they have to transition to adulthood and go to college or find a job. And the person was making the parallel that this is kind of like for people in the United States, how we talk about going to college and how people often reflect on their college years as sort of the best years of their life. People in Japan think similarly about high school. And that's why so much stuff is said in high school. Of course, it also has to do with the target demographic for anime and manga often being young males or young females in, in shonen or shoujo. And a lot of these rom-coms are embedded into those structures and the, for those target audiences as well. So I think it's all of those things combined. Of course, there are rom-coms and anime that break that mold, and I would like to see more of them. Yeah, I do agree. So a third common trope is the unexpected love interest. A ton of shows, Origairu, Toradara, Ore Monogatari. Have you seen Ore Monogatari? I have not, no. I know of it, but I haven't seen it. Damn. A Monogatari you haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> they all have a pairing between romantic partners that would not have been expected to end up together if not for their meet-cute and a heavy dose of plot. In Horimiya, for example, Hori and Miyamura exist in completely different social circles, and they have little in common, at least on the surface. But because of their random encounter outside of school, they end up falling into one of the most satisfying relationships that I've seen adapted into an anime. Next, we have the grand gesture. In many rom-coms, the ordeal is resolved when one character makes some extravagant effort to profess their love. Probably the most well-known grand gesture in all of cinema is the one where Lloyd declares his love for Diane with a boombox serenade in the 1989 film Say Anything. Do you remember that scene? You ever yeah. seen that movie? Yes, I have, actually. And so in anime, and warning, there's going to be mad spoilers for all the shows we talk about, including Origairu. So if you're invested in that show, just be very careful in this episode. <laughs> But Hachiman literally plans an entire scapegoat prom to show Yukino that he's chosen her. And if that's not a grand gesture, I don't know what is. And the final one that I'll discuss here, even though there's so many more, is the happy ever after ending. The vast majority of rom-coms end with the two lovers together in a final romantic climax. Again, at least in the manga. <laughs> and this isn't always true, but there are certainly examples of shows that try to subvert the genre by having the two characters go their separate ways or find new love. But usually we stay true to form and pick the pairing that's been shipped since the beginning. I know that we had different 
expectations when it came to Aragairu. It seems that you had predicted that Yukino was going to win much more than I did. So I was actually thinking that, huh, maybe it's not going to go the tropey way of where he ends up with the girl he first meets and then has the intellectual discussions with. Maybe he'll go with the... Uh... The best girl? Honestly, <laughs> we can talk about this when we get to Oh, Aragairu. we will. It's in the notes, baby. <laughs> Yeah, Yui just got you got developed so much more in that last season, which is so frustrating. But yeah, uh, I even agree that's frustrating for a Yukino boy, at least. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, <laughs> I should mention when you asked me if I had seen say anything. My mom is the biggest rom com fan, maybe <laughs> in the world. So I have seen so many classic modern shitty rom-coms just like live action films maybe more than any other genre just through osmosis because <laughs> my mom when she's done with work she wants something to just unplug not have to think too hard and sometimes a rom-com is the perfect way to do that so i've consumed like a lot of live action rom-com films way more than i would have under any other circumstances <laughs> I mean, that's actually really good. So maybe you'll uh, understand more of the history than you usually sit here and do. <laughs> most of the time, you just zone out. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but are there any other tropes that you wanted to mention that really stand out to you when you watch uh, rom-coms? Um, nothing in particular. I mean, there are some specific to the shows that we'll talk about. Like, you didn't mention love triangles just now. That's a big one in a lot of anime. Or not even just love triangles, just love shapes of any kind. Relationships going in different ways with people having different feelings for each other amongst a cast of characters. That's a big one that you see a lot. I did want to touch on the happily ever after. That is one thing that bothers me about rom-coms in anime is that often you don't get to see that. I know you mentioned sometimes it's in the manga, but sometimes it's not even in the manga. Sometimes that's just the climax and the series just ends and you don't get to spend any time with the characters as a couple. And that's why I think something like Clan Ad After Story is so special. I mean, we talked about that in our Q&A episode, but the fact that it spends half of its time, the entire After Story, focusing on relationship past, you know, where the standard rom-com would end. Not that Clan Ad is just a rom-com, but... That's what makes that series so special. And if we had just had Clan Ad without After Story, I wouldn't even care about it. And I don't really think it would be considered a classic of anime in the way that it is. And so subverting that is definitely something that can be very effective. But oftentimes you do just get the traditional it's over once the confession happens. And while I like that climax in that buildup, sometimes I want to see the couple, you know? Oh, I mean, I for sure agree. I, I do think that at least what I've heard is that this is kind of a consequence of mangakas and screenwriters trying to be diplomatic and not trying to anger one faction or another that believes one best girl is actually oh, yeah. the best. That's definitely and a problem. It is infuriating because if you do have a best girl, you want to see whether they win or lose. It doesn't matter if they win or lose. I mean, it kind of matters if they win or lose. But at the <laughs> I end can of the take day, the L. I can take the L <laughs> yeah. if it's a good story, you know? Yeah, I agree. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about the history of the rom-com genre and some of the series that have been most influential to its current state. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I started doing research into this historical perspective, I thought it was going to be easy. I mean, <laughs> finding information about the evolution of the isekai genre was pretty straightforward because weebs clearly love SAO. But for rom-coms, <laughs> it was anything but easy. I had such a hard time finding a good analytical discussion of the rom-com genre, specifically in anime, its history and how it differs from the genre in Western media. 
I actually talked to my sister about this a little bit too, because she is a, a Shakespearean scholar and understands romances in the Shakespearean sense. And even she was a little bit puzzled about why that literary analysis doesn't exist in this space. Uh, maybe it's because the field of anime study is just too young, but Billy, I'm calling you out here. <laughs> I'd love to see a discussion of this forum in a future volume of Jams. I mean, I think this is a really yeah. cool space that could be explored analytically. In before there's already a fucking paper on this in Jams that we just don't know exists. Don't say that. <laughs> I think another reason it was so hard to compile this information is that the rom-com genre is much older than fantasy and is also deeply rooted in literature, in theater, and in live-action cinema. So let's start there. Buckle in, baby. Seatbelts on. Because we're going back in time all <laughs> the way to antiquity, where okay. the romance genre first had its recorded beginnings. So... Oral and literary works dealing with romantic love have existed for thousands of years, since at least the time of ancient Greece, from which there remain a few surviving tales of romantic prose fiction. As expected, the genre then continued to evolve and make appearances in different times and in different regions until the period that's most relevant to us, which was the late 16th and early 17th centuries. So this is the era of William Shakespeare, who's generally credited with creating the romantic comedy. The romantic conflicts in Shakespeare's comedies, such as The Merchant of Venice or A Midsummer Night's Dream, are thought to have established the rom-com genre and defined its narrative structure. The first attempts at translating the structure into cinema then came in 1924 with the two silent films Sherlock Jr. and Girl Shy. You seem to find this very funny. No, I'm just thinking about the fucking time leap. You just did that. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. Shakespeare and then some silent films. Easy. <laughs> I could spend all day here discussing this if you want, but uh, I'm trying to move us along to anime at least. Yeah, fair enough. But it was really in the 1930s that the rom-com took off with the advent of the screwball comedy, which featured fast-paced witty dialogue, slapstick scenes, and most importantly, a female protagonist and hero. The 50s through the 70s then saw the introduction of the sex comedy, where the sexual liberation movement in society found its way into film and imbued rom-coms of the time with a new sexual tension that came from pitting men and women against each other. And here we finally come to the golden age of modern rom-coms, the 80s and 90s. Some of this generation's most memorable rom-coms, When Harry Met Sally, 16 Candles, Sleepless in Seattle. You know, actually, I so I grew up in Seattle and it's often like a tourist activity to go see like the houseboats from Sleepless in Seattle, which I think is kind of boring because <laughs> just like, okay, yeah, they're there. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, your mom must love that. Y yeah, yeah, I guess. I don't even know if she's seen them, to be honest. <laughs> But that's just like one of those things where if you live in a city, like sometimes you don't do the classic touristy things. Like mm -hmm. I think it took like a decade for my mom to ever go up the Space Needle. And it's like, I don't think my sister still has gone up the Space Needle. Actually, <laughs> I mean, I say that all the time about New York. Like yeah. why, if I'm living here, would I ever go see Times Square or the Statue of Liberty or Ellis Island? Like, yeah. I just don't care. Yeah. It's one of those things that you'll go to if somebody's visiting you and wants to go. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> I hate that. I've shown so don't, many people. Don't come visit Robbie. <laughs> I've shown so many people around New York by this point, And I'm like, all right, man, let's go to like out to Brooklyn. Or let's go out to Queens where there's some really cool stuff. And they're like, no, nah, I want to go out to Times Square and see all the lights. And I'm like, no, believe me, you do not. <laughs> Times Square me, is, you don't. Times Square is certified the worst place in New York. Like, easily. <laughs> I agree. But 
So all of the rom-coms that I talked about, those kind of heavy hitters from the 80s and 90s, they all came out in this period and defined the tropes for the modern rom-com, which is this focus more on compatibility and less on sex. So by now, you've hopefully realized, if you're not just listening to this as background audio, that we're not <laughs> talking about anime. But given that this is an anime podcast, how does this history relate to anime and what were the pivotal shows in that medium that define the tropes for its own iteration of rom-coms? To answer that question, anime rom-coms take many of the elements that I talked about in cinema, the structure, the tropes, and use them to develop their own narratives. That being said, anime certainly has its own stories and characteristics that distinguish it from Western cinema. So where did those tropes come from? From what I could find, one of, if not the first rom-com anime was the 1981 hit classic, Urusei Yatsura. Have you heard of that or seen it? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. Okay. Well, it's getting a new iteration this year, actually. I know. So I'm really and excited it's by, for that one. It's, it's David Productions, too. And it's your boy fucking Mamoru Miyano cast as one of the leads. So I'm super excited for that one. <laughs> People I know are excited, but also kind of nervous for just like any new adaptation of this and especially the tenuous david productions jojo's part six netflix handling people are people are wary but we'll see yeah definitely gonna watch it yeah but urusei yatsura was based on a manga of the same name by rumiko takahashi who's also known for ranma one half and unayasha she is one of the most selling female mangakas of all time and You've probably heard of all three of these, and that just is a testament to her ability to craft incredible stories. The anime for Urusei Yatsura was also the first major success for Mamoru Oishi of Ghost in the Shell fame. So he actually directed the first half of this series, and this was kind of his launching pad to success. So the story follows the lecherous Atoru Morobashi, who is selected to represent humanity in a duel against a fleet of alien invaders that threaten Earth. And if you're questioning how this could be a rom-com, I'm right there with you. But the duel ends up being a game of tag between Lum, the daughter of the alien's leader, and waifu extraordinaire, she is mad hot, <laughs> which Atoru wins in classic anime fashion by grabbing her bikini top. Hot. This was written by a female mangaka. So again, some of the tropes that we're going to see, the sexualization, were present in one of the first rom-coms. But things go awry from that point forward because Lum mistakes Ataru's promise to marry his girlfriend for a wedding proposal to Lum herself. And as expected, comedy ensues. So the important thing to note here is how influential this work was on the anime rom-com genre. It introduced a number of character stereotypes and plot cliches to the medium that we now take for granted, such as the tsundere. Lum was one of the, if not the first tsundere, the geek gets girl storyline, and the magical girlfriend as well. It also popularized other tropes, such as the love triangle, which we were talking about earlier. In essence, Urusei Yasura, which is as we said, getting another adaptation this year, built the foundation for the rom-com genre. Then came shows like Tenchi Muyo and Love Hina. So I've seen Love Hina. I have not seen Tenchi Muyo, actually. It's quite old. So that one came out in 1992. Love Hina came out in 2000s. These shows took what Urusei Yatsura had started and added new elements like the harem, which Oran High School Host Club then reversed to greatest success in 2006. 
I know we're flying through shows. I know that me just briefly mentioning Oran High School Host Club is not going to be satisfying for many listeners. But honestly, we could do entire episodes on them because of how popular and beloved they were for an entire generation of anime viewers. We've had numerous guests already on the podcast talking about how much these shows meant to them. And I think to do them full justice, we have to give them individual episodes. Yeah, we definitely have to do that at some point. And like I mentioned at the outset, we're just not going to get through all the rom-coms. And even in just your description of Urusei Yatsura just now, you can tell that the rom-com genre is super diverse and can be super diverse in terms of its content and the premise. And so we just picked a few shows from the modern era that we liked, and we'll justify them in a second. But there are certainly a lot more that we could talk about. I mean, you haven't even mentioned... I don't know if you're going to mention more shows, but like you haven't mentioned Lovely Complex, you haven't mentioned Fruits Basket, you haven't mentioned Tsurezue Children, you haven't mentioned Wanaka, you haven't mentioned Kimini Todoke. Like there are tons and tons of shows that we could lump into this episode and are rom coms in some way or have rom com aspects to them. And it's just impossible. So I'm sorry if your favorite rom com is not in this episode. <laughs> Agreed. And the reason I haven't mentioned any of those yet is because those are more modern iterations of the rom-com genre. They do differ slightly from the older ones like Tenchi Muyo, Love Hina, Urusei Yatsura. And that's because rom-coms in the 2000s exploded and it gave us gems like Toradora, which we will talk about, as well as Clanad and Fruits Basket. And, and the reason those shows are slightly different is that they did pivot away from the etchy harem comedy. I mean, those tropes may have existed in there, but they just weren't the focus anymore. And instead, the focus was more on individual relationships. The focus in Clanad, the focus in Toradora really is between pairs of characters as opposed to numerous characters focusing on one person. That's not to say we still don't have an overwhelming number of trash, etchy, harem gold for me, because we do. <laughs> But the rom-com genre in anime has now at least had the time to come into its own and play on the narrative structure in creative ways and focus now on elements like miscommunication in romance, which we obviously see in Origairu, or adult relationships in Wodokoi, or the battle between the sexes that we get in Kaguya. The romantic comedy is definitely one of anime's most successful genres, and it's no surprise that this is at least one topic that we can agree on. And probably the last. <laughs> Hey, man, we uh, we did pretty well on uh, the Mamoru Hosoda episode. The Mamoru Hosoda episode. Yeah, that's the only time that we're agreeing <laughs> on the top five ever. <laughs> so let's get into some of our actual deep dive picks. Great. So I wanted to start this discussion just by bookending why we picked Toradora, Oragairu, and Kaguya, specifically just beyond the fact that they are three shows that we really like. And I think there are three sort of main reasons we can justify these selection of shows. So the first, I think, is that they span a nice progression of time, at least in the modern genre for anime. So Toradora aired in 2008, and then Kaguya is currently airing and started in 2019. So that's really a decade or a little over a decade of time that we at least have been anime fans for the most part. And so it gives us pretty decent coverage without delving too much into anime in history that you just talked about and that maybe we will at some point at a later date cover. The second is that each of these shows is very, very distinct in the way it tackles the rom-com genre. Uh, and the way they twist the genre slightly, they give us different unique formulas to discuss what a successful rom-com can be in depth and give us a launching point for uh, discussion. I said there were three points. There were actually only two. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, where's he going to go with this? Uh, the third the third bullet point I had here was something completely unrelated. <laughs> We're doing well today, man. Kids, this is what happens when you write your notes the day before the episode and you don't read them over. <laughs> Uh, anyways, these were the shows that we felt encapsulated the genre, at least in sort of its modern iteration, and give us pretty good coverage to have a few different interesting discussions. So we're going to start with Toradora. So we'll go in chronological order, Toradora, Urogairu, Takagiya. So kicking off with Toradora, which, like I said, aired in 2008, it's based on the light novel series by Yuyuko Takamiya and was adapted by J.C. Staff into a 25-episode anime series. The title is derived from the two main characters, Taiga Aisaka and Ryuji Takasu, where Taiga comes from the English tiger, which is synonymous with Tora in Japanese, uh, and Ryu meaning dragon in English or synonymous with dragon in Japanese. You put those together and you get Toradora. Damn, it's boy, is the Hongu Josu out here. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much as, as simple as it can get. You just, you just put the names together. So the premise of Toradora is that it follows our two protagonists, Taiga and Ryuji, as they become closer with the aim of helping each other ask their crush out. Taiga is interested in the popular vice president and Ryuji's friend, Yusuku Kitamura, while Ryuji is interested in Taiga's bubbly and outgoing friend, Minori Kushieda. This leads to them spending a lot of time together, plotting how each of them is going to ask the other friend out, but it also involves them hanging out as Taiga currently lives alone without her family and Ryuji cooks for her and cooks for his mom who works in the evening. So he's already basically doing a lot of housekeeping. And so she ends up spending a lot of time at his apartment with him and his mom and their stupid fucking bird, which we'll probably Damn, man. <laughs> I think this is a good time to mention though that Toradora is far and away my favorite rom-com. I know that there are some incredible rom-coms coming out now. You are laughing out here. You're <laughs> I, like, no, okay. fuck this rom-com. So, so my thing is that I actually don't like Toradora. How is that possible? How is that possible? There's we'll get so into that. many good I think, elements. I think Toradora does have good elements for sure. Um, and we'll talk about specifically why I don't like it. For me, at least, I think it does so many things really well. It sets up a friendship before it sets up the lovers. It really gets the two characters to spend time with each other and develop together. And it shows that natural progression of friendship into love just because of the amount of shared experience the two have together. I think the other thing that Toradora does very well is the progression of time. The series is only, what, 26 episodes? 25, 26 it's episodes? 25, yeah. But in that time, so much time elapses between individual episodes. There are months that pass by and you can see that reflected within the show and reflected within Ryuji and Taiga's relationships. So actually, my first question to you was going to be about the fact that Toradora, even though it came out in 2008, is at this point pretty much a staple or a classic of the rom-com genre, mm -hmm. which is pretty impressive for a show that came out at that period. I guess there are a lot of shows now, like Steinsgate and Madoka, that are also kind of regarded as classics that came out. We're getting in fucking old, dude. 2011. You don't have to say so, it. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's not that weird for a show that came out in that year to be regarded as a classic, but it certainly is, when you talk about rom-com anime, pretty much the first one that comes to most people's mind. And I was going to ask you what elements of it you think made it such a classic, but you kind of just 
did that <laughs> already. <laughs> well, I think there there definitely are other elements. And again, when when I was talking about the, kind of the history of rom com, it's not like it created any of those elements. There were tsundere's that already existed. There were these love triangles and multiple friendships and things that already existed before Toradora. But what it did, it it cemented them in a way that just was really wholesome, really hit the spot. It was a very fun show to watch, and I think it had interesting characters that we could actually get emotionally invested in. I I don't know what it is that makes Toradora unique other than it just does all of its elements really well. And I think that's enough to say that a show is great. It doesn't have to be the newest thing on the block. It doesn't have to perfect any specific element. If it does all of them well, I think it can create an incredible show. I think one thing it definitely did was amplify some of those tropes and popularize them in a way that made them more standard in the genre. And I think one example of that is the tsundere archetype with Taiga. Of course, there were tsundere's before Taiga, but when you mention tsundere's, that's one of the first names that pops into your head sure. as an anime fan sure. now. And so she has this sort of personality where she's really small and frail, but has this incredibly feisty attitude that matches her quote unquote palm top tiger nickname. And that's contrasted really well with her sweeter side that is only revealed in quieter moments when she's alone with Ryuji or alone with him and his mom, or when she's like completely unable to speak and gets really shy when she's confronted with Kitamura, or when she's chatting to Minori, who is basically her best friend. I think that character is definitely taken to an extreme, but it really sort of launched the Tsundere archetype in a way that I don't know any other characters before her really did. It's interesting because when I was looking up some of the, again, history for this episode prep, I definitely went into a deep hole of tsundere's <laughs> that I don't want to describe. But it's interesting that people actually have different opinions on whether Taiga is a tsundere or not, which I had never heard of before. And it's because for some people, the tsundere has to be Sundere in the love relationship, not just in general. And Taiga doesn't really act in a hostile way towards the person that she initially loves, yeah. but eventually does end up acting hostile to the person she comes to love, yeah. which is something that's interesting. I don't know. It's just kind of a minor aside, but I spent way too long looking <laughs> into that shit, man. No, that's definitely super interesting. And I have not thought about it in that lens, but launching off of that, I think this is sort of a good stopping point to just talk about the two main characters here. What were your opinions on both of them? I mean, I think for me, Taiga is a little bit polarizing in the sense that the exaggeration of her tropes are just too much. That's kind of the main problem I have with Toradora. It is not a show that I watched early in my anime fandom or that I not grew up with because you'd have to be like really young to have like grown up with Toradora. But it's not a show that I watched early enough that it like set the bar for a rom-com or where I got too emotionally invested in the characters. And in general, the gags and the over-the-top nature of some of its character interactions are one of the things that detracted it for me. And Taiga is kind of an example of that. But how did you feel about both the characters? Clearly, you like both of them. Sorry. Are are you a a fan of Nishijou or? <laughs> but Nishijou's doing it on purpose. <laughs> Taiga's certainly doing it on purpose too. It's not like the directors are out here being like, "Oh shit, 
she 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 just acted intimidating that time on accident. No, they fucking wrote it that way. No, dude. this is the same thing as like I don't really like Edgy, but I like Kill a Kill because it's subversive. <laughs> I'm an inter- I'm an shit. intellectual. <laughs> no, I mean I, I I totally agree with what you're saying here. That for some people, the repetitive use of that trope can be a bit jarring and. For myself, too, seeing a show like Hori Mia, where it's toned down and more grounded. Exactly. So, like, you really have the relationship develop more in Hori Mia very quickly as opposed to the one in Toradora. But that being said, I, I think the characters interacted in a way that at the beginning you would have expected would to be oil on water, right? They, they wouldn't have been able to be lovers because they have such different personalities. They exist in different social circles, which is one of the tropes that we talked about. And the meeting between them is only there because each of them wants to get with each other's friend. And I just, I loved that dynamic between them where they were working together. They were collaborating together on this shared goal of setting each other up with each other's friends. And I just, I, I loved how they were working together but then their own relationship was developing along the same time. It, it just it it kind of just reminds me of a relationship that I would love to have, like to have a friend who then falls into a relationship, which you do have. <laughs> yeah, that that actually that that is what happened to me. <laughs> Rom coms relatable. Um, so this is also probably a good time to talk about the rest of the main cast because I think they are. Also super important to the dynamic of the show. I think Toradora is in many ways kind of a slice of life. I don't know if it's technically qualified as a slice of life, but you mentioned sort of the slow burn just between Ryuji and Taiga. In general, this is kind of a slow burn. There aren't like sure. major arcs and your enjoyment of Toradora is really hinged on the fact that you enjoy these characters interacting, living their daily lives. Of course, trying to get with the person that they are in love with, but you just want to spend time with these five characters. And if you enjoy that, then you're going to enjoy the show. And in that way, it really is kind of a slice of life. I mean, I think the slice of life introduction to any rom-com is one of the areas where I'll definitely enjoy the slice of life aspects of it. Because the entire point is on the characters interacting and whether they're progressing the plot or not doesn't really matter as long as they're progressing their relationship. And the slice of life genre is perfect for that because you're seeing them go through the daily life, the things that any relationship needs Toradora paced itself very strategically in that way. We get introduced to both of the characters independently, and a few episodes later on, with almost no warning, you have Ryuji having the keys to like Taiga's apartment. Yeah. You can see the development of their relationship in this slice of life way. I, I think it was done really well. So to continue talking about the rest of the cast, I think the logical place to start is with the two characters that our titular characters actually want to get with, at least at the beginning of the show. So the first is Kitamura, who is really the responsible role model character of the group. Fuck this guy. <laughs> so he's actually rejected Taiga in the past. You find out in one of the first few episodes. And over time, you find out that he's actually in love with Sumire, who's the school council president. LOL at the fact that he fucking bleaches his hair when he's like depressed that she's leaving. That I actually thought was Fuck funny. This guy. <laughs> that I actually thought was funny. Uh, and meanwhile, Minori is really just a fucking oddball who wants the best for her friends while still very clearly trying to find herself, 
Eventually throughout the show, she does have reciprocal feelings for Ryuji, but basically wants to give him up knowing how important he is to Taiga and really just wanting the best for Taiga and also for Ryuji. So you already said, fuck this guy. Clearly you're not a Kitamura fan, but I wanted to get your thoughts on both of these characters. Yeah, I'm not a huge Kitamura fan. I didn't really enjoy his character trope. I'm, I'm just not a huge fan of the type A, this guy is perfect at everything. Like He wants to fucking fuck the student council president out here, <laughs> demolishing my best girl in the show. I wasn't a big fan of that. The one that I, I did enjoy was Minori. Shock. I think I literally texted you very early on in Satoradora, and I was like, Minori is your favorite character, isn't she? I fucking I, I know it. Love, I love Minori. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I do love Minori. And I, I think the way that she's portrayed in the show with this type of cool, calm, collected facade, but underlying this, you know, human anxious person, I, I think that was done really well. There was a scene where Ryuji and Minori get trapped in the shed, if you remember that scene. Yeah. And some of the nonverbal actions there, the way that they're portraying Minori, even though she's trying to remain calm and keep the atmosphere upbeat, but at the same time, her like her hands or her legs were shaking. There, there was something about her yeah. that was conveying her anxiety to Ryuji. I think that was done really well. And again, it humanizes a character. Minori, she also has a lot of development throughout the show. I mean, you said that she comes to realize her feelings for Ryuji, but at the same time, is willing to not protest against his relationship with Taiga. It's a very realistic character. And I think that's what I liked about all of the characters in Toradora. Mm -hmm. I mean, sans the uh, craziness of Taiga sometimes. But all of the characters are characters that I could relate with, that I could feel their feelings and understand why they were doing the actions that they were doing. And I think that's why I love this show so much. Yeah, for me, Kitamura is also kind of whatever. Like, he's fine. I don't particularly like or dislike him. He's just kind of there. He fulfills the trope. He's helpful yeah. in some ways. And I did like the slightly subversive aspect of, like, he actually did have a crush on Taiga earlier, and then she rejected him, and then he rejected her back after he moved on. And I think that's, like, kind of interesting. But beyond that, he's, he's kind of just there. Um, Minori is interesting because I really like what they did with what you were talking about, like the anxious, really trying to find herself under the surface personality. And she actually has one of my favorite conversations in the entire series, which is the one that she has with Ryuji at the beach house where she's talking about if she believes in ghosts and that sort of being a metaphor for finding love and finding happiness in things that aren't super obvious and out there. And that's actually one of my favorite conversations and metaphors in the show. But she's such a fucking weirdo, <laughs> like on the surface, hey, man. that I'm like, girl, can you fucking, it's great. Can you fucking get it together? I think, And I think that's like my main issue with Toradora is that the outward trope of the characters is over the top in a way that doesn't land with me. I will tell you what does land with me. And that's fucking Ami, because Ami can, Ami can fucking get it. Of course it, it is. <laughs> of course it's Ami. Ami can fucking get it. So <laughs> we haven't talked about Ami yet, but Ami Kawashima is the last main character of the cast that is introduced a few episodes in. She's Kitamura's childhood friend who's working as a fashion model and transfers into their school and she has this great two-sided personality where she's popular and sort of sweet at first glance and kind of really nice outwardly to people and charming. But underneath the surface, she's really entitled and spoiled. And for me, 
she was the reason to watch the show. <laughs> like, I'll be honest with you. Ami completely steals the show for me with the simultaneous aspect of being charismatic, but also petty at the same time. She injects like the right level of chaos into the show, sort of just poking all of Taiga's buttons and still trying to figure out how she can not be fake and be real at the same time. It's just very good. Like I, I really fucking like Ami. I stand for I Ami. Mean, <laughs> that's basically saying you like Haruno. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> No, I think she has a lot more depth than Hardo. We'll, we'll we'll get to Hardo. Although Hardo's hot in like a mysterious way, but <laughs> I think they I, I think they at the end of the day serve the same purpose of trying to develop the characters from the outside, you know, poking them and prodding them into a specific relationship. And I think that Ami served that role and she served it pretty well. I mean, I think there's a little bit more, to be honest. I think she does have a pretty complete arc in I don't think the that show. she's ever gonna end up in one of the romances, though. I, I don't think there was any shot of no, her. No, I don't winning. I don't think that either, but she does have an arc where she doesn't quite know how to be in a normal social circle of friends. And that is shown by her relationship with Taiga and the contrast of that with her relationship with other people in the class. And she definitely comes to understand that about herself and sort of figure out how to balance the confident sides of her personality with her just, you know, not being a shitty person to other people. And I quite like that arc. Like, I think it is actually pretty complete for a character that could have just been in there for the chaos and nothing else. Sure, but, sure. And she's hot, so. I knew you were going to pick Ami. I'm going to be honest <laughs> with you. I fucking love Ami, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing I texted you. As soon as she was introduced, I was like, yo, I don't really like this show, but Ami could fucking get it. <laughs> One more thing I want to talk about with Toradora before I move on, unless you have something else, is... What did you think of the ending with Taiga and Yuji getting together? <laughs> it was great. It was perfect. It was everything I needed in life. I was so happy. <laughs> it was finally an ending, bro. Do you know? Okay, so I watched Torador. Torador was probably one of the first romance anime I had watched. Honestly, I think it was the first rom-com that I watched when it was like 2012, 2013. And I was like, oh, man. This ending is mad good. Like they finally get together. And then I didn't realize how much shit I would have to wade through to get the same feeling of catharsis <laughs> at the ending of a show. Because 99% of the time you're just there and they either leave you hanging or put you up with some girl that you literally don't give a shit about. <laughs> and so seeing Taiga and Ryuji end up together actually have a confession, actually profess their love for each other was beautiful. I also actually found it satisfying despite my qualms with the show i did find it satisfying that they confessed i do not care for the let's run away together and get married plots that accompany a lot of these endings and it does here in toradora and i don't like that but i did find the confession itself satisfying what i was lacking i think in reflection at the end of toradora was some of my favorite parts of the show that I haven't already mentioned were the small bits of plot that went deeper into Taiga's relationship with her dad. There were a few episodes focused on that. Or Fuck that guy. Or, or Ryuji's relationship with his mom and her extended family that you get a little bit at the end as well. However, these were just far too sparse and unresolved. And I know I'm asking for a lot in a rom-com, like we talked about, how these often are just easy watches and you want to focus on the romance and the characters and the slice of life feel. And I totally get that. And I'm willing to admit that it's fine that the show is the way that it is. But those little bits of deeper character development are the parts of the show that I connected to the most. And I just wish we had gotten more of that. So apart from just the outer facade and the gags not really landing with me, that's really what I like 
was left wanting more of at the end. I think that's a that's a you thing. That is very a me thing. <laughs> I just yeah. admitted that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to have more background, especially on the relationship between Twyga and her parents. We got some of that. There's a little. Bit. It wasn't fully resolved. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what to say there. I, I think that it did what I needed it to do, and. Yes, there were some unresolved things and it wasn't a perfect story, but still one of my favorite watching experiences based on just entertainment factor. Anything else you want to talk about with Toradora before we move on? No, great show. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, uh, let's, let's move on to a rom-com that I like more. That's <laughs> no, fine. <laughs> which is Origairu, which came out in 2013. So Origairu... Otherwise known as My Youth, Romantic Comedy is Wrong, as I expected, because it's a fucking light novel, and so the title has to be that way, is based on the novel by Watari Watari and has been adapted into... I'm going to name my kid that. I'm going to be honest with you. Origairu or Wataru Watari? <laughs> I'm going to name my kid My Youth Comedy, <laughs> fucking wrong as expected. Yes. No, Wataru Watari. <laughs> <laughs> So Origairu was adapted into three one-course seasons by Brainspace for season one and then Studio Feel for seasons two and three. The series follows Hachiman Hikigaya, who's an apathetic high school student with semi-nihilistic tendencies, who believes joyful youth is nothing but a farce that everyone is deceiving themselves into wanting. As punishment for writing an essay very clearly expressing these views, his teacher... Shizuku Hiratsuka, who's a fucking absolute 10 out of 10. So straight pedophile. Uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> questionable. Questionable. Uh, forces him to join the Volunteer Service Club, uh, which is a club at their school that helps students resolve their problems. Some fucking made-up club that happens a lot in anime, but I swear does not fucking exist in any actual school. This is truly the thing where I'm like, I watch these shows and I'm like, what was I doing in high school? <laughs> Bro, we didn't have clubs like this shit in high school. We couldn't yeah. just sit around in a room all day and fucking read novels with your best girl. Just chill in there. Yeah. Didn't happen. No, school club culture is definitely much bigger of a thing in Japan. And so I get why shows focus on all that. But sometimes like the volunteer service club, can you make a club for anything? Apparently you can. Anime has taught me that you can. So in this club... The only other current member is the beautiful ice queen Yukino Yukinoshita, and soon the outgoing Yui Yuigahama, these fucking names, joins after being the club's first quote-unquote customer. So at the center of Origairu is really the love triangle between Hachiman, Yukino, and Yui. That's really the core of the show, and even as the trio help other characters solve their problems as part of their club duties, the undertones are always about the three's own inner conflicts and their feelings for one another. Yo, bro, where's Kamachi? Kamachi, we could talk about Kamachi. We will talk about Kamachi, but she's not the point of the show. Kamachi's best girl. I'm sorry to tell you. <laughs> Kamachi best girl, man. You're a fucking siscon. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about how much... Toradora impacted you as a rom-com that you watched. For me, that was Origairu because this is the first anime rom-com that absolutely fucking wrecked me from an emotional perspective. I had never been this invested in a set of three characters in a romantic comedy setting. And I remember, okay, this is like a sidebar, but do you like sometimes, you know, you're watching anime, you pull it up on, on your 
big 16 inch screen laptop or you put it up on your TV at home and you're like, I'm gonna have a good watching experience. Like that's typically what you do, typically what most people do. Yeah, where are we going with this? Wait, just wait. But sometimes there's something magical about turning off all the lights and watching it on your phone, like right up against your face. What the fuck <laughs> is wrong with you? No one thinks this. No, definitely people think this. I've talked to other people that think this. And Origairu, for a lot of its climax and a lot of its emotional scenes in the first few seasons, I watched in that manner. And the anime hits different <laughs> when you watch it in the dark by yourself where you can cry and no one will judge you. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Origairu, great show. So let's do the same thing that we did with- I feel like I really got to know something about you today. <laughs> okay, I swear other people do this. I'm not the only one. <laughs> I don't think I've ever watched a show on my phone. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think well, I've ever sat there and been like, I need to watch this on my phone. Fucking try it. Just try it sometime. Okay, so we're going to talk about the, the plot workings of Origairu in a second, but I thought we'd do the same thing that we did for- Toradara and start with focusing on our main set of characters. So Hachiman is the viewpoint character. We get a lot of the content of the show through his inner monologues. And he has a skill for social perception due to his years of social isolation, which I always find kind of hilarious. Uh, his prominent feature is his quote unquote dead fish eyes. And his philosophy is generally centered around viewing happiness as a facade, like I mentioned earlier. Yukino is the president of the service club who generally wants to help people, but has a knack for being brutally honest and wanting to directly analyze people's flaws in order to help them, which of course makes people feel bad about themselves. Throughout the series, she opens up and starts to make more friends in part due to her friendship with Yui. And Yui is the most outgoing and charismatic character of the trio. Shout out to the Yahalo. Actually, speaking of <laughs> speaking of Yahalo, after I watched Oregairu, I started saying that like randomly because I'm a fucking weeb. And I got my family into saying it. They've never seen Oregairu. They don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> but like sometimes I call my mom and she'll just be like, Yahalo. And I'll be like, that's an Oregairu reference. But you don't know that. Anyways, Yui's problems lie in not being able to tell the truth due to her fear of losing friends. So she does exist in a lot of social circles, but she has trouble with being honest and often envies that in Yukino and Hachiman. So what were your opinions on our three main characters? I mean, honestly, I, like I said, I, I still think Toradora is my favorite rom-com just because of the overall plot and pacing of the show. But I think the characters in Origairu are just better. I think they are my favorite characters in any rom-com. Hachiman he initially is a character that I don't think anyone could support. There was nobody out here being like, yes, let, let me be friends with this guy who is out here saying that high school has no meaning and like life is just a series of misfortunes out here. And like no one wants to be friends with that guy. But somehow he ends up being one of the most intelligent and relatable characters that I've seen in a long time in anime. Anytime you is on screen, unless she's crying, it's generally going to be just a very charismatic scene. And it's a lot of fun to watch her 
and watch her interactions with the other two. I mean, she gives off that like ditzy airheaded vibe, but she's actually incredibly intelligent, incredibly emotionally intelligent. And she really is, I said this before, she's the linchpin of the three characters. Yep. I think the show really is focused on Yui more than it is on the other two characters. Because we get so much time with her just in season three, seeing her interact with Hachiman and develop her relationship and seeing her internal monologue yeah, as well. We'll talk about that, yeah. And Yukino, best girl, man. She's my best girl 100%. You just said Kamachi was best girl. Fucking pick one, bro. Well, I can't pick the sister because Hachiman can't end up with best girl fucking <laughs> Komachi, can he? This isn't Arema out here, man. <laughs> Shout out Sori Hayami, just fucking first of all. Like one of my favorite VAs, and this is probably one of her breakout performances. So I think one of my favorite interactions in all of anime was the banter between Hachiman and Yukino. It's really good. Yeah. Like it's so oh, fucking Oh, she's gonna good. fucking lather this guy in oil put him up on the stake and just fucking roast him in front of everyone <laughs> it's so good it's so good and i i love that show for for these three characters it's completely driven by just these three even though there's a whole cast of other characters and there's a whole cast of pretty good characters but i completely agree with you that these three really set origaru apart as a rom-com and the dynamic between them i think they're perfectly positioned in that they each have different problems and different personalities that play off each other well but give each character a very unique set of challenges to face and a very unique perspective on all of the different situations that they are placed in and that they have to solve and that's of course leads to the clash between the three of them and trying to figuring out where this love triangle is going to go but they are three just characters that are such a joy to watch on screen most of the time whether it's yukino roasting hachiman hachiman just having these internal monologues where he's like what the fuck is the point of this i want to die right now whether it's yui just being super bubbly but also emotionally perspective it's one of those shows where like you mentioned that yukido is your best girl it's yui for me i'm definitely much more of a yui person i have a pretty strong drawing to characters that are willing to do a lot for the person they care about and show that outwardly. And that's definitely what Yui is and Yukino is not. But these characters are so well done that I love Yukino as well. And I had literally zero problems with her and Hachiman ending up together at the end of the show. And as you said at the outset, that's where I thought it was going. And they are sort of the pairing that makes sense. But a lot of my enjoyment of Origairu is the dynamic between these three and how much I love them. And also a little bit of masochism, being a, a Yui fan and knowing this is going to end poorly. And there's something enjoyable about the suffering, but it really is the dynamic between Spoken these three. like a true masochist. <laughs> but I will say that as a Yui fan, can you please tell me why does she like Hachiman? That's a good question. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> that was the thing that frustrated me in this show to no end is like I can understand why Yukino likes Hachiman because Yukino doesn't have any friends people put her on a pedestal for being this ice queen where nobody can communicate whether she's just too intelligent or she's too socially removed and Hachiman can break into that sphere there was no good reason for Yui to initially like Hachiman for me well I mean the initial reason she likes him is because of the accident that happens in their first day of high school which i'm gonna get into in a short second but i think beyond that what she appreciates or at least the the feeling that i get from you is that of course she has a lot of social 
relationships, a lot of other people that she could potentially be romantically interested in. But there is something special about her relationship, not just with Hachiman, but also with Yukino, where she feels like that group of friends offers her something different that her other friends cannot. And I think to her, a lot of those other relationships feel very fake and very just created in a way to keep up appearances, but not actually talk about anything deep or connect on an emotional level. And she does that much more with the other two. So while her initial draw is maybe like questionable and happenstance or whatever the term you used for it was <laughs> earlier, cute, cute, cute moe. Meet cute. Meet cute. <laughs> cute moe, yes. <laughs> I think it makes a lot of sense why those feelings develop. So let's talk about the other thing that is very prominent in Origaru, which is fucking subtext. If you don't like reading between the lines, do not watch the show. <laughs> like, stay away from it. Because the entire, basically, point of the show and everything about the character interactions hinges on people not honestly speaking about their feelings and everything being implied through subtext. I completely understand why this might be a major turnoff for a lot of people and make it seem like all this fabricated drama. And I have to admit that in a lot of cases, it is. Personally, I love that aspect of the series. It's really fun for me to think about, oh, what does this character mean? You know, what, what is this character trying to imply? What's the motivation for this character? All of those things, piecing those together is a very fun watching experience for me. You might not want that in your rom-com and that is completely fucking understandable. Let me give one example of how this is used, which is Hachiman's accident on the first day of school. So Hachiman gets in an accident on his way to school on the first day of high school, which leaves him in the hospital for a few weeks. And then once he comes back to high school, he's already sitting on the outside of most social cliques at the school. You don't find this out until like a, a decent way through the first season. I don't remember exactly where, but it is not revealed early on and kind of just hinted at. And it's later revealed that he got into this accident because he was trying to save Yui's dog. And the car that actually hit him was Yukino's family car. This is eventually spoken about between the characters, but it takes a long fucking time, like a long fucking time. And before then, Hachiman attributes Yui's feelings towards him as being due to guilt and indirectly kind of rejecting her, thinking that he'd be a burden for her. And all of these interactions and these feelings that the characters have for one another, based on just this one detail in the plot, is all implied. You have to infer all of it and sort of get the gist that Hachiman is aware of the feelings that the two girls have for him and doesn't really know what to do about it and is sort of piecing it together within the events of the show. That's basically, in a nutshell, how this show operates. Everything is <laughs> subtext. Nothing is just spoon-fed to you. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is a hard one for me. And, and I think this is the thing that I struggled with in Origairu, is that there are so many things in this show that in the first two seasons are done really well. But I think the subtext is sometimes done in a way that the situation just feels too contrived and it's just used to push their relationship together in a way that I didn't feel was satisfying. And we can talk about this more in season three, but the prom situation in season three, I felt was so contrived that it just really didn't make sense as, as a good way to end the relationship. And in the same way, Haruno coming in and saying, you're codependent on each other. And this is why your relationship is never going to succeed. And this is why you all three have to break apart this relationship and come back together. 
I thought that was bullshit. I, I'm going to be honest with you. So I know we have different opinions on this, but sometimes the subtext was too much for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to concede that. Like, we can get into this and talk specifically about season three. Again, just before we do that, I did want to talk very quickly about the difference in style of adaptation between the seasons and the studio. A lot of the opinions that I've read seem to prefer the brains-based style in season one. I personally prefer the feel style. I think it's a little bit more colorful and slightly less standard in the art style. The brains-based style feels in season one a little bit quote-unquote bland. I still think it's a good adaptation, but that's just how it came across to me. I was kind of surprised that I was in the minority on that one, but that's I'm my surprised. Are we in the minority? Because I, I mean, I agree with you. I, I think the feel style is just so much better. That's, and that's I, my recollection from reading threads. Maybe I'm remembering okay. incorrectly, but... But yeah, I, I 100% agree that the feel style is so much better. And the one area where it really shines is the facial expressions. The facial expressions in season one are drawn by like a fucking robot. Like <laughs> no one is is really putting that much time and effort into the facial expressions. And they're so variable. Like Hachiman is drawn as a literal fucking like cardboard box in some frames. In seasons two and three, there's so much emotion conveyed in their facial expressions. Like Season three, Kamachi best girl. I'm out here saying it again. But there are just some scenes, like, for example, when she's thanking Hachiman for bringing her up during the moment where she's graduated. And she actually goes down and, like, hands and knees and says, thank you. The emotions that are just conveyed in their faces or just other scenes where she's joking with him. And I don't know why. I love, I love Kamachi so much. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> I just think the, the emotion comes across so much better in seasons two and three. I agree, personally. And for a series that is about subtext so much, you kind of need the facial expressions to sort of yeah. guide you in your interpretation of, of what the characters are saying and feeling. So, Oh my God, the fucking rap battle also in <laughs> yeah. season three. Okay, That was fucking great. Uh, let's actually just talk about <laughs> season three since we're already here and that came out recently. And also it's the resolution and the climax of the series that people have been waiting a long time for. So let's just talk about it. All we right. both have issues with season three. So why don't you start with yours first? Yeah, I mean, for mine, I just thought that the way the relationships were resolved was just done poorly. I thought that the plot to get to the final climax was way too contrived. And we spent so much time focusing on this prom that we didn't really get the development of the characters in a way that I wanted the series to end. So that's one thing. I thought the prom thing was way too contrived. The second thing is Haruno's influence throughout the show has really been to try and poke and prod the original three in the love triangle to understand why it is that they love each other and what they need on each, from each other. And she uses this word codependency that Hachiman then takes to heart so hard and just completely demolishes him for the entire rest of the season where he's out here being like, I can't be codependent. And like Yukino's out here being like, no, fuck you, Hachiman. I can't be codependent on you. And Yui's out here being like, nah, I'm fine with this. This is jamming. And so it, it's just it sets up a really weird, anxious relationship between the three that splits them apart in a way that I didn't enjoy because I wanted them to really make a choice from each other. I wanted Hachiman to make a choice based on more time spent with them instead of less time now spent with Yukino, who was my favorite girl. Season three spends so much time with Yui and then really at the end just does the 180 of, nah, he's actually going to pick Yukino. And like, I understand why they did that if they wanted to really build it up and, and come to this climax that was like sudden and, you know, people weren't expecting it. But 
didn't enjoy that. It, it really pushed Yukino to the side and then made the choice for her at the very end, which was very frustrating for me. Yeah, so that last point that you just made about time spent with Yukino versus Yui is my biggest problem with season three. So I'll get back into that in a second. Talk about the codependency thing. I, again, can totally concede how it's fucking contrived. My only reply is that everything is fucking contrived in the show. <laughs> and it's sort like, I can see what they were going for. It sort of does make sense that like, Yukino has not had many friends in her life. And so the first time that she has someone that can bail her out of situations and take on the burden for her, she's at least made to feel or could potentially think that she is abusing that relationship with Hachiman and that she needs to prove to herself and to her family and to Hachiman that she can do things on her own before being in a healthy relationship with him. That totally makes sense. I, I agree that there are like awkwardnesses about the way they set it up and it could have fit together nicely. I'm sort of willing to just like, for this entire series, be like, yeah, everything is contrived as fuck. So I'm just like in it for that. And <laughs> I could sort of just let it slide. The... Time spent with the two main girls, I should say the split of time spent with the two main girls, it's really what bothered me about season three. The choice here was to continue following Hachiman's perspective as he attempts to help put on this prom event, like you said. But the result of that is that Yukino is basically relegated to being this like side character that we don't get much interaction with. We don't really see anything from her perspective or her development leading up to the climax. So we don't know what she's thinking or what she's feeling. If she actually feels like she's making progress in her quest for independence, we don't really know that. How does she feel when she's removed from Hachiman and Yui? Does she miss them? Does she contemplate how she's been put in this situation? Like we really don't get any of that. And that's really what bothers me. Instead, we just focus on Yui getting repeatedly fucking heartbroken, realizing that she could never be with Hachiman and that his feelings are actually for Yukino in the romantic sense. That was fucking pain. And obviously, I enjoyed that because I'm a masochist. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't need that many of those scenes. Like, we needed a few of them, but we also needed to spend more time with Yukino leading up to that climax. And so that felt like a really odd point of focus. And I don't know if it's like that in the light novels or if there's a lot more of Yukino's perspective because we can switch POV more easily. I don't know. But this relegation of Yukino to like a auxiliary character was super fucking weird and we didn't need that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, at the end of the day, I just think that you're right. A lot of it is contrived. I just felt like the way they chose to go about the ending could have been done, sure, in a contrived way, but just in a much better way. They didn't have to spend literally 10 episodes or whatever the fuck they did on this prom that was completely inconsequential to the final point. The last thing that I want to mention is it, it just parallels what you had said about the ending of Toradora is that there were so many side characters introduced in Origairu that just ended up having no resolution. And Iroha, for example, her relationship with, who's the fucking blonde Superman? <laughs> uh, I don't remember. Whatever the fuck this guy's name is. Hayama. Iroha, her relationship with Hayama is never fully resolved. None of the other clique of people have relationships that I felt 
comfortable with, I'd say, at the very end of it. They just all just wander off. And I know the story is about the main three here, but if you're going to introduce these characters and spend so much time with them and give them relationships, why not actually provide conclusions to them that, you know, make us feel good? Haruna was the other major one. I, we, we've mentioned her, I think, more times than any character so far. She had no real clear point in the show besides trying to prod Yukino over and over. She doesn't end up with any type of resolution to her plot either. Yeah, I think I did say at the outset that there are a lot of interesting side characters in Origairi, and I think that's true. There are. There are some really great characters. But I do think you're right that the resolution for their arcs and their development is not fully fleshed out, at least in the anime. Iroha is a good example of that. Hayato is a good example of that, like we talked about. Saki apparently is like a light novel favorite because she gets a lot more screen time and a lot more development. She's the blue haired girl. Yeah, the blue haired girl with the younger brother or younger sister. I can't remember. Um, oh, yeah, the younger brother. Yeah. Oh, man, I loved her. Yeah. So she also apparently gets a lot more time in the novels. And so the anime just kind of like cast these characters aside a little bit. And I agree that that's a shame. What I think we can agree on is that they fucking nailed the climax. Like, they oh, absolutely yeah. fucking nailed... I climaxed for sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you just look at a rom-com and you're going to measure its success by how well that climax is, we just kind of trashed parts of season three. Season three still fucking rules because the confession on the bridge between Hachiman and Yukino for sure. had me absolutely fucking cheering and crying at the same time. It was so perfectly done in like an awkward way for the two characters that they are. The follow up to that and them sort of figuring out how to act around each other was like ridiculously cute. They they really fucking nailed a confession scene. I think you remember this because I was live messaging you oh, yeah. my thoughts and yeah. like pictures and screenshots of it as I was watching You're it. You're absolutely losing Dude, it. The moment, the moment that you can know out here was like, I love you. Oh, <laughs> shit, dude. I lost it. I lost my fucking mind. I was like, this is the best thing that I've ever seen in anime. This is yeah. beautiful. It was like, it made great. up for all of the rest of the season three bullshit that I had to put up with up till that point. <laughs> oh, my God. It was so good. It really was great. All right. Before we move on from Origairu, very quickly, best girl ranking. You have to rank Yukino, Yui, Iroha, Komachi, Shizuka, Saki, and Haruno. Okay. Komachi. <laughs> Then Yukino. <laughs> then, which one's Shizuka? That, the teacher, sorry. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, Kamachi for sure, number one. Okay, Siscon. Then, then Yukino. <laughs> then Iroha. Then Shizuka, Saki, Haruno, and then Yui. That, that's bait. <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking bait. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's Yui, then Yukino. Fuck the rest of them, but probably... Yeah, fuck <laughs> no. you. Um, I think I would like Saki a lot more if it was the novels, but I'm going to put her last because it's the anime and she's barely there. And then after Yukino, I guess it's uh, Shizuka, the teacher. And then Haruno because she's hot. And then Iroha and Kamachi. fucking dick. And then Iroha and Kamachi are like somewhere in there. Maybe they're above. What? Maybe they're above Haruno. Maybe they're above Haruno. I don't. I, I honestly don't even care one piecemeal <laughs> at all about Saki. So I don't really care. But definitely Kamachi number one. I mean, she definitely had the best scenes in the entire thing. She has the little shark tooth. Oh my god. 
Iroha, she had she had the funniest gag in all of Origairu, where anytime Hachiman would say anything, she'd be, be like, are you hitting on me? No, 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 sorry, I can't do this. <laughs> I loved that gag. She's a, she does have, she does have some of the better, like, funny parts of the series. I do agree with that. Yeah. All right, anything else you want to say about Origairu? No, nah, man, I don't know how you finish this if you're in so much pain. <laughs> I'm a masochist, I just explained that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Kaguya-sama, which aired in 2019. Kaguya-sama Love is War is based on the manga by Aka Akasaka and is currently being adapted into thus far three one-core seasons by A1 Pictures. The third season is currently airing, so we're going to talk about it here, and we're going to talk about it next week as well, I guess. The premise of the series is that student council president Miyuki Shirogane and vice president Kaguya Shinomiya seem like the perfect pair on paper. Shirogane is the well-known top student at their school and one of the top students in the country, while Kaguya is academically very successful while being the daughter of a wealthy family. They have developed feelings for each other while serving on the student council together, but they are too proud to confess their love, believing that doing so would be an absolute loss and a hindrance to their pride. The show is centered around the mind games and schemes that they are involved in trying to get the other to confess to them. So Aka has mentioned that the names for the characters were inspired from the tale of the bamboo cutter. This is explicitly explored in one of the skits in season two. We talked about this folktale, Japanese folktale already in our Studio Ghibli episode when we talked about the tale of Princess Kaguya. Uh, so similar reference here. And Aka has also talked about how he wanted to create a series about intellectual battles like Death Note, but centered around a clashing of romantic emotions. His general philosophy is that manga should provide people with something exciting to read while conveying meaningful messages about human relationships. So I actually, when this show first aired, was sold the show as basically a rom-com version of Death Note. And I always thought that was kind of like hyperbole. It's like one of those comparisons that people make because it'll get your attention the same way that people say Attack on Titan is the Game of Thrones of anime. Like, yeah, that has some merit, but you know, you're mostly saying that to try to get people into it and draw some superficial level parallels. But apparently the mangaka just actually was inspired by that. So <laughs> fuck what I know. Do you think that's a valid comparison? I think it's a valid comparison at face value. And we'll talk about some of the ways in which Kaguya goes, I think deeper and sort of beyond that initial mind game premise. So I wanted to ask you at the outset, what do you think of the two main characters and what do you think about just the premise of Kakia, sort of these romantic battles? Oh, I mean, I really like it. It, it definitely has one of the highest entertainment factor of any rom-com from the last few years. I, I think Kaguya is refreshing. It's done differently. It's done in a way that I haven't seen a rom-com done before, especially given how much stuff we've had to wade through in the past few years of just shitty harem etchy comedies with like overused tropes and like love triangles and i think this was done really well all of the characters in the cast have some quirk that makes them entertaining my girl chica my girl <laughs> chica is number one all right fuck kaguya let's go chica all the way but when it comes to the characters i mean the characters are just so entertaining and this is almost similar to a sex comedy in the way that sparks are flying between these two characters as they're battling it out because, as you said, they're too prideful for one to confess to the other one. 
And it's just, it's so entertaining watching them trying to one-up each other, but then also at the same time have these anxious inner moments that we actually get a glimpse into because we could see into their inner thoughts. That That is just really well done perspective and amazing direction by the staff. Yeah, so Kaguya's main selling point, like you said, is actually just how funny it is. Definitely at first glance, that's what everybody is drawn into. The comedy and the gags are so good and We've talked about on this podcast before how comedy in anime can be difficult. This is one of those shows that is probably one of the funniest I've ever seen, not even just in anime. Like, I laugh out loud for sure while watching some of the antics of the show. I think Akka, the mangaka, has an amazing ability to tap into the relatable aspects of overthinking relationships and other people's feelings for you or your feelings for them. This sounds like it could get old and maybe you don't relate to it if you are someone that has never overthought a relationship before but i think a lot of people have and this doesn't get old because the writing is always so meta and current so for example in the latest season there are in the first episode two skits or one skit which is all about red receipts and uh, another joke that is made about discord servers and that's just a great example of how on top of current discourse the mangaka is in order to be able to write that into a manga that is serializing weekly i have a lot of other favorite skits that i want to mention i don't know if you have any ones that you want to shout out but like chika teaching shiragane how to do anything he's bad at like volleyball singing dancing are absolutely highlight kaguya laughing at the word wiener because she's basically never heard it before her sheltered <laughs> life is also fucking oh, hilarious I love that one Kaguya being super childish when she's sick and like Hayasaka and Shiragana have to take care of her is really fucking funny. Kaguya trying to find out if Shiragana is a boxers or briefs man is because she heard that wearing boxers or wearing briefs makes you a man whore. I can't remember which one it was. It's also <laughs> fucking hilarious. Like the premises here are just so fucking relatable and funny that there are just like too many good skits. You a boxers or a briefs boy? Uh, nah, nah, more of a box of briefs, boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm a box of brief, man. It gets the support plus you get the comfort. That's <laughs> yeah, what I'm talking that's, that's about. What you want. <laughs> I think one of my favorite skits, or or just any of my favorite skits, are usually the ones involving Chica. To yeah. be honest, like for example, the one that I remember most often is when she's playing the board game with both Kaguya yeah. and Shiragane, and also the, anytime she raps, like anytime she raps, <laughs> it's ten out of ten. So we should mention the side characters that are on the student council as well. So Chica, we've already talked about a lot, but she's the student council secretary and basically just serves to be the agent of chaos who always adds this layer of unpredictability to Shiragane and Kageya's plots. She's portrayed as a bit of an airhead despite having many talented skills on paper. I actually think even in... So I just started reading the manga. We talked about it at the top of the show that I picked it up. And I was reading it on the way to this recording, the first volume. And actually, she is just described as basically a chaos factor or like an agent of chaos. So like, I ripped that straight from the manga, basically. In terms of the other characters, Yu Ishigami is an underclassman and the student council treasurer who is basically the character embodiment of uh, an otaku. And then Miko Ino is a character that is introduced in season two. She's an underclassman who joins as the financial auditor after she loses the election to Shiragane. She's all about imposing order and discipline and has to basically learn how to loosen up as she witnesses all the antics of the student council members. There's this hilarious fucking running gag in 
the second season where she's like walks into the student council room and it, there's always like a facade of Shiragane and Kaguya doing something like sexually explicit when that's not at all what is <laughs> happening. And she like loses her mind every single time. It's so good. <laughs> I actually haven't seen that far yet. So to any listeners, I have finished season one and I finished the first two episodes of season two, but I haven't gotten further than that. It's really a fucking travesty. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I want to uh, dive into with Kagi a little bit is that I think one of the best parts of the series is how it moves beyond its initial hook and its initial premise and its comedy at just the right times. I think it knows how to make you laugh and obviously use its comedy, but then really transition and pivot into these heightened emotional moments. So some examples of that, one that you might remember is Shiragana taking Kaguya out for fireworks with the rest of the student council at the end of season one. That's a really emotionally charged moment where they have been looking forward to this fireworks trip they planned for the entire summer. They haven't seen each other as a group all summer and Kaguya has always lived this sheltered life where she's not been allowed to socialize and do all the things that a normal high schooler would get to do. And she finds out at the last minute after being excited for this event that her family is basically just not letting her go. Like she just can't attend this event because it would provide some bad image for the family name, which is stupid, but whatever. So Shiragane basically calls Hayasaka, her maid, and devises this entire plan to get her to the firework festival in time. And they end up missing the show altogether, but driving to another town nearby to catch the end of their fireworks show in this taxi and it's such a beautiful well-crafted emotional moment that when you started out you might have thought this show was all fun and games basically and it turns out to really not be like that and have a lot more depth to it with moments like that which i really really like hayasaka supremacy man hayasaka is fucking great there are a lot more moments like this which i don't want to get too into because they're spoilery for ravi because he's a bitch who hasn't watched this yet but i can i can i can <laughs> i can remove my headphones <laughs> no i'll just i'll mention them but not in detail so for example shiragane knowing how to bring out miko Ino's confidence on stage when she's losing it and helping her out even though she's his rival in the selection ishigami's backstory i don't want to really spoil it for ravi because it is one of the best points in the show and something that elevated the show to being one of my favorites beyond just being something that really made me laugh that I enjoyed watching. But them delving into Ishigami's backstory and everything that he went through before he got to high school and what the student council did for him and the way that that is explored and shown in the animation and the storytelling is insane. Like that is, I think, Everybody is basically top Kaguya episode in season two. And so I'm kind of just expecting more home run moments like that as the series continues serializing. Lastly, I wanted to mention the production value. So I think Kaguya has one of the best staffs in anime. And it's highly comprised of ex Shaft members. And you could tell, I promise I'm not biased, that it's just because of that. Oh, you're biased. Don't worry. <laughs> but you can tell that this team understands exactly how to bring out the comedic elements, but that they know how to make this series come to life and add flourishes that are specific to the anime that really elevate its quality. So that's of course just shown in the animation quality, but also the references that are built in. There are multiple Monogatari references, including an entire scene just completely recreated in season two. 
There's references to JoJo's with Pillar Men, with Kill a Kill, with Dragon Ball Z. There's an entire shoujo-style anime scene with Shiragane and Ishigama fighting over Kaguya. There's Peanuts references. All of that are just these little touches where the art style changes or they'll add in these specific elements that if you're paying attention, if you've seen these other shows or the other content, you will just immediately recognize. And it just shows this attention to detail that you don't often see in other shows. Getting Masayuki Suzuki, my fucking boy, for all the openings is just amazing. The consistency there with the openings is great. Noko Yamada directing the season two opening under a pen name. I don't know if you knew this, but... I didn't know that, So the season two opening is a complete story arc, basically, that showcases Kaguya, like, preparing this Mm -hmm. meal for Shiragane and carrying it all the way to the student council room. And then the rest of the student council members basically try to investigate this love situation and Chika showing up at the last moment and, like, eating the heart-shaped omelet that Kaguya had made for Shiragane. It's a really beautifully packaged minute and 30 second opening which tells you everything you need to know about the show and it's just really well done and it's like one of the best kept anime secrets that naoko yamada just directed this like for basically no reason other than that she could (laughs) and so she did it under a pen name so her name is not officially under it but like everybody knows that she's the one who did it and it was her first project outside of kyoani which is pretty remarkable that this show would just get something like that On top of that, the trailer for season three is fucking 10 minutes of an entire manga chapter with meta commentary about what it means to be an otaku and all these really funny gags that another show would just not get like basically half an episode into its trailer. But this show for some reason does the Chica dance that went viral in season one. What other show gets a fucking entire dance routine as like a special ending that just like doesn't happen. (laughs) What did you say? I said Haruhi. Haruhi, but that's like in the opening. Like that is, you know, that's that's baked into it. That's something they're going to reuse every episode. This is just like the animators wanted to flex and add this in a random episode ending for literally no reason. So yeah, the production value of this is is quite insane. I mean, every episode you can fully expect is going to be something new, something interesting, something really well animated. And my girl Chica is just <laughs> killing people out here, man. <laughs> Dropping bombs. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, my take, I mean, if you couldn't tell, I fucking love the show. And my take, (laughs) my take is really that I think it is a modern classic in the genre in the making. I think the amount of appeal and viewer base and manga sales and everything that it is getting every single season that it is airing, like I think on Reddit threads, it competes with Attack on Titan episodes, which is crazy in terms of scale for something in this genre so i really do feel like it is a classic in the making it's very fun to be current in the anime space and experiencing that all right anything else you want to say about kaguya we done yeah kaguya is unfortunately the only one of these that i haven't finished or i'm caught up with so (laughs) yeah you're gonna do that before our next episode and then you'll just retcon everything that happened (laughs) i think one of the reasons i haven't watched yet is because i loved season one a lot and I know that it's going to be really good. And that's why I'm like, I'm going to save this in my back pocket as like a good rom-com. Well, unsave it and just watch that shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts on the rom-com genre or anything that you would personally like to see that hasn't been done before? Or anything you're particularly looking out for? I don't necessarily want to see something that hasn't been done before, but I definitely want to see 
some things like the shows that left me a hole in the past couple of years. Horimiya. Horimiya just demolished me. And I still don't understand exactly why. I mean, it gave us a relationship that we saw go from the entire narrative structure of a rom-com within the first like five episodes. Characters had their meet cute. They immediately got into a relationship. They They're cute their love. They're cute moe. <laughs> they profess their love for each other. I mean, they actually have like a sexual relationship, which is so uncommon to see in anime. And then they still have development for the side characters. Like that is such a beautiful show. And I wish more shows actually gave us the full trajectory of a romance like Horimiya, like Clanad, like even Toradora, like these shows did. It's, it's just rare to see it. And I really wished we could see more of those. I think a big part of it is mature relationships. Otakoi is a great example, and we barely talked about Otakoi today, but Otakoi is a great example of a mature relationship that takes place outside of high school. All three of the shows that we talked about still are located within that high school setting, and it just gets old after a while because, again, all of the conflicts that you've seen before are just going to be reused over and over and over. All of them have to do with social anxiety in high school and club life and, like, you know, high school drama. Whereas Otakoi actually goes beyond that to show a workplace setting and show what people are like in relationships when they're adults. It's something I really wish we could see more often. Yeah, that's the same thing that I actually had is moving beyond high school. Like, obviously, some of these shows already exist like Watakoi, but more of them would be nice and you have to kind of hunt them out and unfortunately that's kind of an anime specific problem like we talked about but that is definitely something that we i think would both like to see the other thing i had written down here is just to quickly mention my dress up darling as sort of a template for a modern rom-com that i don't think is either of our favorites but is satisfactory and like took the community by storm to be honest and that's really because it has good leads a pretty solid premise, cosplay, and a pretty good adaptation with a few standout episodes. It does have some etchy, so obviously it has like its own twist to it, and Marin is hot, and that carries a lot of it, but I think it is a template for what a successful rom-com could look like in the sense that it doesn't have to do anything crazy or really twist the formula in any ways, but it just has to do a few things really well enough for it to be enjoyable. I think Marin is hot and encapsulates like 90% of my dress up, <laughs> darling. And so people people are always going to be satisfied by a good quality ecchi. And I'm going to say that, and that's generally true, is that once you start adding the sexual elements into it, our brains just turn off and we're like, <laughs> yes, hot. And that's exactly what happened with my dress up, darling. You're talking to someone that preferred the non-ecchi parts of the show, but... That's Fuck me. <laughs> you. There's no way he's measuring her in seam and you're sitting there like, no, nah, no, nah, skip, skip past this. No, nah, <laughs> I didn't I'm say out, I I'm skipped. Out. I didn't <laughs> say <it's> skipped. <laughs> All right. All right, go ahead. I, th I think that's it for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed us talking about the romantic comedy genre and some of our favorite shows uh, within that and the twists on the formula that they utilize. Next episode, we're going to be doing our spring 2022 first impressions so look out for that for more kaguya spy family talk your boy kongming taking over the anime scene we'll talk about all of it uh next podcast episode please subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get your podcasts spotify stitcher apple podcast anywhere like that uh, if you use apple Podcasts and you could take a second to leave us a rating and a review that would mean a lot really helps out the show in terms of visibility check out our website at bakamanter.com 
Follow us on Twitter at BakabanterPod. Again, all the interactions that we get to have with people that are listening to the show is always a huge joy for us. So that's why we make it. And shout out to anybody that's that's reached out. It means a lot. And otherwise, we've been the Bakabanter Lads, and we'll catch you all in the next one. Bye.